Welcome back to the Hemingway List <clears throat> podcast, the podcast where we do things the Hemingway. We're talking about chapter 115. Um, book is getting very sidetracked for being so late in the book. I thought. I thought. I mean, I can't even remember what this chapter was about. But um, I've actually noticed that a couple of times during the Hemingway list. Um, like towards the end of the book when you'd think you'd expect that they start wrapping it up and um, yeah, just um, doesn't happen. Apologies, I'm distracted at the moment by something. Um, okay, distraction over. <laughs> Sorry about that. Star 415 said, is the author setting up Sally and Phil together. Ah, uh, okay. I isn't Sally like? Oh wait, I, I just had it in my head that Sally was like a teenager. Um, or maybe she's not though. Maybe she's a young lady. Several hints. She acts differently towards him. Didn't want to kiss him. He is irritated by it. It made me think this way. But then a suitor pops up. Although Sally isn't that thrilled by him. I'm not very pleased if this is where it is heading. Cutilli said, when Philip met Sally. I noticed that the author was giving her much more attention than the other children in previous chapters. I think those two will end up together by the end of the book if Philip doesn't screw up something massively. Uh, man, that would be a bit out of nowhere. But now that you say it, yeah, there has been a lot of attention on the Athelnes and on the daughters. So maybe. Swim said the moment she said, interesting that we get stuck, sorry, that we get a chapter pretty much devoted to Sally. Lines that stuck out. Sally was a bit too fond of having things her own way. Hilarious line when Sally says this of Athelny, we don't want another one who is talkative in this house. Athelny headgear he is wearing for tea with the suitor. Fez is a felt headdress in the shape of a short cylindrical peakless hat. Usually red, sometimes with a tassel attached to the top. The name Fez refers to the Moroccan city of Fez, capital of the Kingdom of Morocco until 1927, where the dye to colour the hat was extracted from crimson berries. Very cool. New word that I learned, rodomontade. One, a bragging speech. Two, a vain boasting or a bluster. Rodomontre. I don't know if I actually said it right. And I remember thinking that last night during the reading that I just kind of skimmed past that word, having no idea what it meant and no idea how to say it. Rodomontade. Maybe I can, maybe I can get it to say it. Oh, yeah, I can. Rodomontade. Rodomontade. Okay, Rodomontade. Lady Rostova says, okay, I still hate the dad. Did he call his daughter a hussy? Apart from that, since the very first introduction <clears throat> introduction of Sally, I felt like she's going to end up with Philip. Let's see what happens. <clears throat> Excuse me. Acoustic Eel says, yes, my philosophizing came on a bad day. <laughs> it kind of did. Um, although they were interesting philosophical musings. Uh, I need to wait until we're all in a good mood and then pull us down. Yeah, good plan. Uh, another difference between British and Russian classics, one skips three weeks in the opening lines of a chapter, the other skips three weeks and kills someone in the opening lines of a chapter. 
Uh, Philip and Sally might be a good thing, as some of the others have said. I could ship it. The kids are already calling him Uncle Philip. Compared to some of the relationships Phil has been in in this book, this one would probably turn out the best. I think he should fold while the chips are slightly in his favour and take Sally because he knows, who knows, how much worse his possible next girlfriend would be. Uh, yeah, you know, I like the Athelny's family. And I can imagine them having Philip and Sally. Not that I really know much about Sally at this point, but um, just based on her home life, I can imagine her um, fitting into a good home life with Philip, uh, which is a good thing, you know. Um, so I can imagine them being happy together, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, they say, like, you, you don't just marry the person, you marry their family. And I think Philip could marry into a far worse family than the Athelnys. Even though the dad does have his quirks, um, he does still seem to be quite, I don't know, affable in a weird way. Um, with all his casual bigotry, uh, he does still seem quite pleasant weirdly enough. Uh, Laura Weistich said this, the line that stood out the most for me was actually one just in passing. Mildred suffered from anemia. I liked that it showed Mildred came up to Philip's mind, and as a result, we're all reminded of Mildred as well. Yeah, that line did stand out a lot to me as well, because it was just, that was the whole sentence, Mildred suffered from anemia. Um, it was like almost like a little afterthought or a little sidetrack thought from the, the author or from the character from Philip. Um, <clears throat> and also it kind of like just to see the name Mildred crop up again you're kind of like oh no I thought we were done with her even though it was just that one little passing sentence um, did kind of make me feel like that alright alright let's keep reading let's just keep on reading 116 okay how does that one go oh excuse me Far out. I'm a yawny person. All right, chapter 116. During his last year at St. Luke's, Philip had to work hard. He was contented with life. He found it very comfortable to be heart-free and to have enough money for his needs. He had heard people speak contemptuously of money. He wondered if they had ever tried to do without it. He knew that the lack made a man petty, mean, grasping. It distorted his character and caused him to view the world from a vulgar angle. When you had to consider every penny, money became a gro of grotesque importance. You needed a competency to rate it at its proper value. He lived a solitary life, seeing no one except the Athelnys, but he was not lonely. He busied himself with plans for the future, and sometimes he thought of the past. His recollection dwelt now and then on old friends, but he made no effort to see them. He would have liked to know what was become of Nora Nesbitt. She was Nora something else now, but he could not remember the name of the man she was going to marry. He was glad to have known her. She was a good and brave soul. One evening, about half past eleven, he saw Lawson walking along Piccadilly. He was in evening clothes and might be supposed to be coming back from a theatre. Philip gave way to a sudden impulse and quickly turned down a side street. He had not seen him for two years and felt that he could not now take up again the interrupted friendship. He and Lawson had nothing more to say to one another. Philip was no longer interested in art. It seemed to him that he was able to enjoy beauty with greater force than when he was a boy. But art appeared to him unimportant. 
He was occupied with the forming of a pattern out of the manifold chaos of life, and the materials with which he worked seemed to make preoccupation with pigments and words very trivial. Lawson had served his turn. Philip's friendship with him had made had been a motive in the design he was elaborating. It was merely sentimental to ignore the fact that the painter was of no further interest to him. Sometimes Philip thought of Mildred. He avoided deliberately the streets in which there was a chance of seeing her, but occasionally some feeling, perhaps curiosity, perhaps something deeper which he would not acknowledge, made him wander about Piccadilly and Regent Street during the hours when she might be expected to be there. He did not know then whether he wished to see her on or dreaded it. Once he saw her back, which reminded him of hers, and for a moment he thought it was she, it gave him a curious sensation. It was a strange, sharp pain in his heart. There was fear in it, and a sickening dismay, and when he hurried on and found that he was mistaken, he did not know whether it was relief that he experienced or disappointment. At the beginning of August, Philip passed his surgery, his last examination, and received his diploma. It was seven years since he had entered St. Luke's Hospital. He was nearly 30. He walked down the stairs of the Royal College of Surgeons with the roll in his hand which qualified him to practice, and his heart beat with satisfaction. Now I am really going to begin life, he thought. Next day he went to the secretary's office to put his name down for one of the hospital appointments. The secretary was a pleasant little man with a black beard, for whom Philip had always found very affable. He congratulated him on his success and then said, I suppose you wouldn't like to do a locum for a month on the south coast? Three guineas a week with board and lodging. I wouldn't mind, said Philip. It's at Farnley in Dorsetshire, Dr. South. You'd have to go down at once. His assistant has developed mumps. I believe it's a very pleasant place. There was something in the secretary's manner that puzzled Philip. He was a little doubtful. What's the crab in it? he asked. The secretary hesitated a moment and laughed in a conciliating fashion. Well, the fact is, I understand he's rather a crusty, funny fellow. The agencies won't send him any more, anyone, anymore. He speaks his mind very openly, and men don't like it. But you'd think he'll be satisfied with a man who's only just qualified. After all, I have no experience. He ought to be glad to see you, said the secretary, diplomatically. Philip thought for a moment. He had nothing to do for the next few weeks, and he was glad of the chance to earn a bit of money. He could put it aside for the holiday in Spain, which he had promised himself when he had finished his appointment at St. Luke's, or if they would not give him anything there, at some other hospital. All right, I'll go. The only thing is, you must go this afternoon. Will that suit you? If so, I'll send a wire at once. Philip would have liked a few days to himself, but he had seen the Athelneys the night before. He had gone at once to take them his good news, and there was really no reason why he should not start immediately. He had little luggage to pack. Soon, after seven, that evening he got out of the station at Farnley and took a cab to Doctor's Souths. Doctor Souths. <clears throat> it was a broad, low stucco house with a Virginia creeper growing over it. He was shown into the consulting room. An old man was writing at a desk. He looked up as the maid ushered Philip in. He did not get up, and he did not speak. He merely stared at Philip. Philip was taken aback. I think you're expecting me, he said. The secretary of St. Luke's wired to you this morning. I kept dinner back for half an hour. Do you want to wash? 
I do, said Philip. Dr. South amused him by his odd manner. He got up now, and Philip saw that he was a man of middle height, thin, with white hair cut very short, and a long mouth closed so tightly that he seemed to have no lips at all. He was clean-shaven but for small white whiskers, and they increased the squareness of face which his, with, which his firm jaw gave him. He wore a brown tweed suit and a white stock. His clothes hung loosely about him, as though they had been made for a much larger man. He looked like a respectable farmer of the middle of the nineteenth century. He opened the door. There, there is the dining room, he said, pointing to the door opposite. Your bedroom is the first door you come to when you get on the landing. Come downstairs when you're ready. During dinner, Philip knew that the doctor, that Dr. South was examining him, but he spoke little, and Philip felt that he did not want to hear his assistant talk. When were you qualified, he asked suddenly. Yesterday. Were you at a university? No. Last year, when my assistant took a holiday, they sent me a varsity man. I told him not to do it again, too damn gentlemanly for me. There was another pause. The dinner was very simple and very good. Philip preserved a sedate exterior, but in his heart he was bubbling over with excitement. He was immensely elated at being engaged as a locum. It made him feel extremely grown up. He had an inane desire to laugh at nothing in particular, and the more he thought of his professional dignity, the more he was inclined to chuckle. But Dr. South broke suddenly into his thoughts. How old are you? Getting on for thirty. How is it you're only just qualified? I didn't go in for the medical till I was nearly twenty-three, and I had to give it up for two years in the middle. Why? Poverty. Dr. South gave him an odd look and relapsed into silence. At the end of dinner, he got up from the table. Do you know what sort of a practice this is? No, answered Philip. Mostly fishermen and their families. I have the Union and the Seamen's Hospital. I used to be alone here, but since they tried to make this into a fashionable seaside resort, a man has set up on the cliff, and the well-to-do people go to him. I only have those who can't afford to pay for a doctor at all. Philip saw that the rivalry was a sore point with the old man. You know that I have no experience, said Philip. You, none of you know anything. He walked out of the room without another word and left Philip by himself. When the maid came in to clear away, she told Philip that Dr. South saw patients from six till seven. Work for that night was over. Philip fetched a book from his room, lit his pipe, and settled himself down to read. It was a great comfort since he had read nothing but medical books for the last few months. At ten o'clock, Dr. South came in and looked at him. Philip hated not to have his feet up, and he dragged up a chair for them. "'You seem able to make yourself pretty comfortable,' said Dr. South, with a grimness which would have disturbed Philip if he had not been in such high spirits. Philip's eyes twinkled as he answered. "'Have you any objection?' Dr. South gave him a look, but he did not reply directly. What's that you're reading? Peregrine Pickle, Smollett. I happen to know that Smollett wrote Peregrine Pickle. I beg your pardon, medical men aren't much interested in literature, are they? Philip had put the book down on the table and Dr. South took it up. It was a volume of an edition which had belonged to the Vicar of Blackstable. It was a thin book bound in faded Morocco, with a copper, copper plate engraving as a frontispiece, 
The pages were musty with age and stained with mould. Philip, without meaning to, started forward a little as Dr. South took the volume in his hands and a slight smile came into his eyes. Very little escaped the old doctor. Do I amuse you? he asked icily. I see you're fond of books. You can always tell by the way people handle them. Dr. South put down the novel immediately. Breakfast at 8.30, he said, and left the room. What a funny old fellow, thought Philip. He soon discovered why Dr. South's assistants found it difficult to get on with him. In the first place, he was—he set his face firmly against all the discoveries of the last 30 years. He had no patience with the drugs, which became modish, were thought to work marvellous cures, and in a few years were discarded. He had stock mixtures, which had he had brought from St. Luke's, where he had been a student, and he had used all his life. He found them just as efficacious as anything that had come into fashion since. Philip was startled at Dr. South's suspicion of asepsis. He had accepted it in deference to universal opinion, but he used the precautions which Philip had known insisted upon so scrupulously at the hospital with the disdainful tolerance of a man playing at soldiers with children. I've seen antiseptics come along and sweep everything before them, and then I've seen asepsis take their place, bunkum. The young men who were sent down to him knew only hospital practice, and they came with the unconcealed scorn for the general practitioner, which they had absorbed in the air at the hospital. But they had seen only the complicated cases which appeared in the wards. They knew how to treat an obscure disease of the superannual bodies, but were helpless when consulted for a cold in the head. Their knowledge was theoretical, and their self-assurance unbounded. Dr. South watched them with tightened lips, took a savage pleasure in showing them how great was their ignorance and how unjustified their conceit. It was a poor practice of fishing folk, and the doctor made up his own prescriptions. Dr. South asked his assistant how he expected to make both ends meet if he gave a fisherman with a stomachache a mixture consisting of half a dozen expensive drugs. He complained, too, that the young medical men were uneducated. Their reading consisted of the Sporting Times and the British Medical Journal, they could neither write a legible hand nor spell correctly. For two or three days, Dr. South watched Philip closely, ready to fall on him with acid sarcasm if he gave him the opportunity. And Philip, aware of this, went about his work with a quiet sense of amusement. He was pleased with the change of occupation. He liked the feeling of independence and of responsibility. All sorts of people came to the consulting room. He was gratified because he seemed able to inspire his patients with confidence, and it was entertaining to watch the process of cure, which at a hospital necessarily could be watched only at distant intervals. His rounds took him into low-roofed cottages in which were fishing tackle and sails, and here and there mementos of deep-sea travelling, a liqueur box from Japan, spears and oars from Melanesia, or daggers from the bazaars of Stamboul. There was an air of romance in the stuffy little rooms, and the salt of the sea gave them a bitter freshness. Philip liked to talk to the sailor men, and when they found that he was not supercilious, they told him long yarns of the distant journeys of their youth. Once or twice he made a mistake in diagnosis. He had never seen a case of measles before, and when he was confronted with the rash, took it for an obscure disease of the skin. And once or twice his ideas of treatment differed from Dr. South's. The first time this happened, Dr. South attacked him with savage irony, but Philip took it with good humour. He had some gift for repartee, and he made one or two answers which caused Dr. South to stop and look at him curiously. 
Philip's face was grave, but his eyes were twinkling. The old gentleman could not avoid the impression that Philip was chafing him. He was used to being disliked and feared by his assistants, and this was a new experience. He had half a mind to fly into a passion and pack Philip off by the next train. He had done that before with his assistants, but he had an uneasy feeling that Philip then would simply laugh at him outright, and suddenly he felt amused. His mouth formed itself into a smile against his will, and he turned away. In a little while he grew conscious that Philip was amusing himself systematically at his expense. He was taken aback at first, and then diverted. Damn his impudence, he chuckled to himself. Damn his impudence. All right, there we go. There's that chapter for you. Bit of a longy. Uh, have your say about that chapter at the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.